So this morning we are completing our teaching series, uh, Love Is, where we've been looking at uh, this one chapter in Scripture for the last six weeks, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes about the value of love. We wanted to start 2018 not by majoring in the minors, but we wanted to talk about what the Bible says is most essential, that if you're going to have some goals or resolutions, if you're going to say, I want to start the new year off intentionally and try some things, we didn't want to like start with a, a small little suggestion. We wanted to start with something that we say, the Bible says that this is what it's all about. If you want to reassess your life and how you're living. Start with this value, this practice of love, because it is central to everything God is and everything that God says brings us life. We've allowed and hope that this one chapter of Scripture would guide us. And as we've spoken about from the beginning and the thread that we've wanted uh, everyone to be aware of and to follow is that this is not just a passage of Scripture that we should feel comfortable with if they're only read at weddings. That's probably where most of us have heard this passage of scripture before at weddings where it talks about love. And the reason for that is because we make a natural uh, uh, association that love is something we feel in our hearts. It's an emotion that we feel. And certainly part of love is an emotion, but what Paul's writing about here, he says that true love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion, but that love is actually an action that you choose, or as Bob Goff writes, love does. Love is not an emotion or feeling that's here one minute and gone, I feel in love, I don't feel in love, you know. But it's an action we choose. And the defining act of love, as we talked about last week, is the cross. Where we see that when Scripture says God so loves the world that he sent his son, it didn't mean God just had feelings for the world. But love turned into action. The Savior gave himself away. Ultimate act of service and of sacrifice for God's love for all the world, for you and for me. So today we're going to be wrapping this up, and to wrap the scripture passage up, we're actually going to read the entire chapter for the first time. We haven't read all of the verses together, but we're going to bring it up here, and I invite you just to listen along uh, and maybe read silently one more time uh, as we engage this teaching on love. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging, clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that no matter who we are, how we walk in here, what doubts, what questions, what beliefs, 
what ideas that you, the living God, would speak to us all about how we are called to live and to love. We pray for your guidance and your leading and the power of your spirit to do this work. We lift this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, what we've done over these six weeks is we've really kind of taken this chapter of the Bible and we've looked at it in three parts or kind of three separate uh, chunks. The first chunk we looked at the first week on January 6th. And the first part is verses one through three. And this is where Paul makes very clear to us the importance of what he's putting forward with love. What he says from the very beginning is this, you were made for relationship. You were made for relationship with God and with other people. And that if you don't live into that, if you don't see the supremacy of love, if you don't understand that we are relational beings and that that is where we find our meaning, then you are missing the point of why you're here. Doesn't matter what your career is, doesn't matter how much money you make, doesn't matter where you go to college, doesn't matter what degrees you have, doesn't matter where you taught, doesn't matter what, uh, you know, if your high school is ranked, it does not matter what degrees you have on your wall that others might admire. This is why we're here, for relationship, to love each other. He says, if you don't have that, it does not matter what you do. You are nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And that love is not a feeling again. Love is an action. So that was week one. He's outlining from the beginning in verses one through three just how critically important this part is. He doesn't want us to miss this. And then the next part of scripture is where we've spent the majority of this teaching series because in verses four through eight, that's sort of the second part of the second chunk of scripture that we've looked at. And what he does in verses four through eight is he sort of takes this idea of love and he unpacks it for us. And he says that, you know, love isn't just a feeling, it's an action that you're called to do. This is what everything in life is about. And so he says, I want to kind of illuminate what that act of love looks like. So he says it's patient, it's kind, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not envious or boastful. It doesn't, as we talked about last week, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. It endures all things, hopes all things, believes all things. Love never ends. The point of this section as we've looked at it is to say, well, what does it mean to say love is patient? And, and, and maybe if we're trying to figure out how to become more loving, if this is what life is all about, to become more loving and to receive love from God and to reflect that love to other people, then, then, then these actions allow us to have access to that. So we don't just have to say, so become more loving. We can say we can work on becoming patient. We can work on becoming kind. We can work on understanding and rejoicing in the truth. And as we do these things, we become more loving. They help us to understand what love does. Love does things patiently. Love does things with kindness, okay? That's the second part of this. Today, we're gonna wrap up this series by looking at the third part, which is from verse nine through 13. It's through the end of the chapter. And this verse, this section of scripture, it actually feels really different, doesn't it? Like that's the first time we've read the whole thing through. And there's kind of this shift once you move past verse eight, because up until then, everything kind of has this poetic rhythm to it. Do you know what I mean? Like you can hear it when you read it. Love is patient, love is kind, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, there's sort of this thing when you read it or when you hear it that you kind of can uh, uh, almost get into the rhythm of it, right? And then all of a sudden, starting in verse nine, that sort of comes to a halt. It's why we've... It's why we've saved this to the end, because when you've read this the previous week, it's like, yeah, I love this, I love this. And then you're like, er, 
kind of like verse 9 comes and it starts feeling really different. Because then Paul starts becoming more, it seems like, academic. It's like, okay, now, we know in part, you know, having, we see partially, but we're going to see fully. And then you've got to stop being a child. Stop acting like a child. Uh, you need to start acting like an adult. And it's all your childish ways. You've got to put them away now. Because now it's time to be an adult and to act like an adult and speak like an adult. And then it's almost like he catches himself. And then at the end goes, oh, right, and so faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Do you know what I mean? Like it feels different. It's written different, and it feels different. And it seems kind of weird that the way Paul wraps this section up is to move from these beautiful ideas of what love is to going, stop acting childish. Stop being so immature. And you got to put childish things away now. Now it's time to grow up. Start, time, start acting like an adult. I want you to think about in your life when you've had one of those moments where you stop and go, oh, I've got to start growing up now. Like, we all have them, right? For me, one of the clearest ones was the first year that our first child came home from the hospital. And... Um, and my wife lovingly kept reminding me that we had to grow up now, that, that things needed to change because there was extra responsibilities around the house. Like, do you think about that in your mind? Think about when you've in your life had a moment where you knew or maybe someone told you that it's time to grow up now. It's time to stop acting like a child. What we mean by that is often accepting more responsibility for things, Right? That's the inference behind what it seems like uh, we say. Uh, we actually talked about this uh, in staff meeting this week, and one of our staff members was reflecting on a time when this happened to her, kind of one of the first moments when it was, oh, I have to grow up now. I've got to start acting like an adult. I've got to put childish things away. And she said that it was her college graduation. And that when the weekend of graduation came, our whole family came up for graduation, and they were all celebrating at dinner the night before, and they went and they, they took pictures and, you know, do all the things you do at graduation. She had the cap and the gown, and she walked across the stage. And, and then kind of afterwards, as the celebration was starting to wind down, and everyone was getting ready to go back home, her dad came up to her with some paper and handed them to her and said, hey, this is like four bills that I've been paying for you while you've been a student, and you, these are now yours. Like, the, the, these are yours to start paying. And uh, you know, foreclosure and bankruptcy are bad things. So you want to take these seriously, you know, here. Happy graduation. It's time to stop acting like a child. It's time to grow up. It's time to start acting like an adult. This is what Paul writes here at the end of this section on love, and it just seems a little bizarre. It seems strange. It seems out of place. It doesn't feel very loving There's a term that we've actually invented because we have become so adept at understanding that growing up means doing to-do lists and having responsibilities. The word we're going to bring up on the screen here is called adulting. <laughs> and this is not a Thomas word, and this is not slang anymore. This is a new addition to the dictionary. This is the definition in the Oxford English Dictionary for the word, the word adulting, which is a noun, Okay. Adulting is the practice of behaving in a way characteristic of a responsible adult, especially the accomplishment of mundane but necessary tasks. It's time to stop acting like a child. It's time to grow up. It's time to start taking some responsibility. It's time to do some adulting in your life. Doesn't it sound great? 
every day getting to focus on doing, accomplishing mundane but necessary tasks? Doesn't it sound awesome how we've defined responsibility and adulthood? And Paul in this section on love is looking at us and saying, time to put childish things away because it is time to grow up. Take on some responsibility. But faith, open, love, abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. You see, when we define adulthood and adulting in this way, it means certain things happen. It means that the, the, the idea of becoming mature and growing up is the accomplishment of tasks. And the inference is that when adulting and maturity is the accomplishments of tasks, then what we have to be willing to do is to constantly push aside those things that are unnecessary or immature. And so what happens is, is that we don't have time for quiet time for 45 minutes in the morning anymore because we have responsibilities for work or for family or for everything else. And so, you know, it's great that some people are able to do that, but I have to do adulting. My day starts out in a certain way. It's great that some people have small groups or mentoring relationships. I just can't arrange my schedule that way because I have responsibilities of what I need to do. I have too much adulting to do. It's relationships that are quickly pushed to the side. And so our day can become, when we're not careful, a litany of to-dos. Got to do this at work. Got to do this at home. Got to drive this carpool. Got to be done at this time. Have you paid the deposit for this yet? No, I haven't done that yet. You got to get in a permission slip. Who signed it? Who signed the report card? We got to have this uh, application in at this time. Did you get all the essays done? Did someone spell check it? Have you met with the right person about the classes that you're supposed to take? Have we worked out vacation? Do you have the right frequent flyer miles for how we're going to take that flight? Or did you irresponsibly just buy the tickets and not think about it anymore? What are we doing? And then when we come to the end of the day with hopefully as many things crossed off our adult to-do list as we can do, we go to bed stressed out, feeling like we didn't do any of it very well, and the good news is we wake up tomorrow and it all starts again. Yay, that's right. And this is why we look at young people and we're like, live now. Enjoy these days, live now, because it won't always be, this is what awaits you. Paul says it's time to grow up and to leave childish ways behind. You think that's what he means? It's also said that love isn't a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's an action. What would it mean if what Paul is saying here is that growing up is more than just the accumulation of to-dos. What if Paul would look at that definition of what it means to be an adult and say, no, that's what I mean by being childish. This is a section of scripture where I'm saying to you in these verses, remember why you're alive. 
Remember what you're here for. Remember that at your core, you are a relational being designed to receive love from God and other people and to love others in action well. That's where meaning and purpose are found. And so what I'm asking you to do is to not build your day only on to-do lists, although I know things have to get accomplished, but to build our days around the values and principles and practices of receiving and giving love to one another. What would happen if he would look at this generation, maybe any, more than any other generation in history, at the fast-paced, busy, adulting lives that we live and say, how childish have you become? Because you're so busy acting like adults, you can't even have the discipline to focus on what God says you're here for. Folks, what would it mean if we took that as an idea and heard God saying to each of us today in our adulting, busy, to-do list world, folks, it's time to grow up. It's time to put those childish ways behind you, that childish way of thinking, that immature way of thinking, because maturity and adulting are not the same thing. And it's time to build your lives and your days and your calendars and your weeks and your values and your vacations as mature people seeking to receive and give love. One of the joys that I have as a pastor is the opportunity to um, officiate weddings. Uh, it's, uh, it, I got to do this last week for a couple here at Covenant. It's one of the great, cool things that, that my job allows me to do, and I'm always grateful for the opportunity to do it. But one of the things that I always say to couples, and there's couples here that I've, I've, I've married today, and um, I hope you heard me say this, because I, I, I think I said it, I hope I said it, is that there needs to be for every couple a cutoff point, a point where when you get to that point in your engagement, um, you stop doing things and enjoy it. Usually the rule I have is by the rehearsal. At no point, by the rehearsal, the night before, the day before the wedding, at that point, whatever's not done isn't gonna get done. Or if there's a problem, everybody knows who to go to to solve the problem and it's no longer you as the bride or groom. Because you need to be present in what's about to happen. You can't be so busy that you actually miss the importance of what's going on in, in your wedding. Uh, I had that, one of my first weddings, I had a, a bride about a month after the wedding who started crying in, uh, with me when I saw her in worship, and she said, I was so stressed out with how everything went, and there'd been a problem with like the flowers that day, and they hadn't come in right, and she was trying to sort that out in the afternoon for her wedding. She goes, I was so stressed out, I can't even remember the ceremony. Making, adulting, making sure everything's done right. Weddings are a time where there's a lot of adulting. And about six years ago, uh, I, had the, I was invited to officiate a wedding between some uh, good friends of mine, uh, Jim and Jessica. Jim and Jessica uh, had been dating for a while. I'd known them for a while. They were a lovely couple. And they, uh, we were living in Atlanta at the time. They were members of our church. And Jim and Jessica were people who had grown up for generations in Atlanta, their parents and their grandparents. And, 
And Atlanta, in a way, is a lot like Austin. Austin has a lot of transplants, people like me that moved here, maybe people like you. But for people who have been in Austin back a generation or two, there's parts of Austin that you look at going, yeah, that, that still exists today. Hopefully there are those threads of what makes Austin Austin that you can point to and say, that's cool, and that's still there. And, and that's what we know and love about it for those of us who have been here all our lives and our families have been here. Atlanta is that way. Atlanta's grown a lot in the last 30 years, uh, so there are a lot of transplants there. But for people who go back a generation or two in Atlanta, there's still this Southern society way of functioning that is alive and well, right? Most, most people in Atlanta don't get it. You can tell people because of how they speak. If you get it, you say Atlanta with the right accent. You call it Atlanta. That's what, that's what we call it. When people go, I live in Atlanta, you're like, yeah, you don't. You don't, you don't get it. You're not saying it right. You're from somewhere else. It doesn't start with an A. It starts basically with a T, Atlanta. That's where, that's where you know if someone's there. Jim and Jessica, it was, it was Atlanta. Their grandparents knew it was Atlanta. Their great-grandparents knew it was Atlanta. Their parents knew it was Atlanta. I mean, it was generations, and this was going to be a society wedding. 800 people were in attendance at the wedding. It's the largest wedding I have ever done. It was in a sanctuary that Jessica had grown up in. Her parents had asked them if we could use that space. It sat 1,500 people in the sanctuary, enormous sanctuary with uh, all of these guests. And, and the wedding was just this entire affair where there was wedding coordinator, wedding coordinator, there was the mother of the bride, there was the mother of the groom, there was the father of the bride, father of the groom, all of whom had opinions on things. Jim and Jessica had opinions on things. And there was a ton of adulting to get ready. There were, uh, I think, 11 bridesmaids and 11 groomsmen just kind of spread out everywhere. There were different musicians in different kind of places that were going to do stuff. There were different like cousins who were going to do readings. And I mean, it was a huge, huge affair and tons of logistics. And again, you got to work through logistics, right? They got to happen. And so th everyone had, including me, like laminated cards that came to you. It's like, this is what you have to do. This is when you have to do it. This is when you need to show up at a place. So the groomsmen are meeting here for lunch, and then they're doing this in the afternoon, and some of them are flying in, and here's who's doing the, the rides from the airport, and, and then they're going to gather here, and then they come to the rehearsal, and the rehearsal dinner is going to be here, and we've got transportation, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's, it's a huge deal, right? About a month before the wedding, I was meeting with Jim and Jessica for our last premarital counseling session, and I was doing my thing of going, listen, you can't be too busy for this. You've got to focus on the right things. You don't want to lose track of what you're about. And Jessica started tearing up. She was so stressful. It's just so stressful. There's so much going on. I'm trying to work. And I was like, I get it. You know, I'm praying for you. Um, you know, and, and she goes, and then on top of it, I'm just trying to figure this out because my dad has now informed me that he needs my help on the day of the rehearsal with something. And I was looking at him going, Dad, I do not have time to do this. I don't have time to help you out with a rehearsal. And he's like, no, I need help with something. I need you to come and help me with something. And she goes, and you can't get stuff done. And my mom's angry with him. She's like, why are you putting more on Jessica on the day of her rehearsal? And you're making her meet you an hour before the rehearsal begins and so that you can go and, and do this. Like, why are you? And, and I said, well, can you talk to him? Like, can he understand you have too much going on? She said, I've tried. And so he's adding this on to me. And her dad seemed like a really nice guy. He's a quiet guy. I didn't know him well. But I'm like, well, just explain it to him. Maybe it can work out. I didn't, I didn't have a whole lot of interaction with him again until the day of the rehearsal, the day before the wedding. And I walked into the church for the rehearsal to begin. I got in there a few minutes early. And in the sanctuary, there is Jessica. And she's crying, which is not how you want to like start in on the whole thing. And I, and I was looking at her going, oh my gosh, this didn't work out. Um, you're stressed out. You've got all these things and now your dad added this. And 
Um, and her dad was sort of sitting there with a sort of sheepish look on his face. And I walked up to her, and I'm like, so, um, God, I'm sorry. If, like, before people arrive, is there anything I can do? Do you want to pray together just to, like, try to get your heart focused on what's about to happen? Um, you know, do you mean to talk to your dad? Do you mean to pray for him? Do you want me to take him outside and very directly pray for him one-on-one about what he's doing wrong? Like, how can I help? My job was like, how can I help in this? And she said, well, what happened is, is that my dad this morning, when we kept trying to say to him, I don't have time for this, uh, he said, listen, I've got to have your help with, and he gave me an address to plug into my phone. He said, meet me here an hour before the rehearsal. So I plugged the address into my phone, and I drove there and followed it, and she goes, and it turned out it was the address of the church. Like, she knew how to get to the church, but she had lived in Atlanta all of her life, so she didn't know that it was the address, and she pulled into the parking lot an hour before the rehearsal, and her dad was waiting for her in the parking lot. And they walked together into the sanctuary. It's a huge sanctuary. 1,500 people are going to be seated in there. And they stood in the back, and he had arranged for everyone to be gone. All the church staff were cleared out. Everything was set up and ready early. And he looked in the back of the room with her and stood there, again, a quiet guy. And he said, in about an hour, everyone's going to descend on this place. Your mother's going to descend on this place. The other family's going to descend on this place. Ever the bridesmaids and groomsmen, we're going to have wedding coordinators. The pastor's going to be here. Everyone's going to be telling people what to do. We're going to have to get all the logistics right. He said, tomorrow, when we stand here, you're going to be caught up in the hundreds of people that are here and your dress, and then most especially Jim down at the front and the fact you're about to get married, you're going to be thinking about that. And he said, but today, I wanted for you and I to do this one time together, just the two of us. And he held out his arm. And Jessica said she stepped forward and she put her arm through her dad's arm. And that together with no one else in the sanctuary, the two of them walked down the center aisle together. And when they got to the front, her dad asked her to sit in the front pew. And he sat down next to her. And he said, Jessica, I need you to hear what I'm about to tell you. I want you to know how much I love you. I want you to hear how proud of you I am. I want you to hear how excited I am for the life that you and Jim are going to lead and for the start of this new season of your life. But I want you to know that no matter where you go or what happens in the years ahead, I will always, always, always be here for you. And then he asked if he could place his hand on her head and as a dad give her his blessing. And I walked in just a few minutes after his prayer and his blessing had ended. There was a lot of adulting that was going on around that wedding. But I think that the Apostle Paul would have looked at that moment and said, that is what maturity looks like. Because he built his day, not saying I'm not going to get things done, but built his day saying it will all revolve around that moment taking place. That is the moment around which everything else will revolve. Because nothing will be more important than our doing that together. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I wonder about if we took seriously the call to think about our time and our schedules and to think about what love and action looks like. 
What would it mean this day and this week and in the years to come if we built our lives and disciplined ourselves around that value of receiving and giving love, of knowing that at our core we are relational beings? If we heard the words of the Apostle Paul and took them seriously right now that said it is time to grow up, it is time to put childish ways away, build your life on this act of love, This is why you're here. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day, as we draw this series to a close, that you would help us to live with maturity, to live as people who seek to have the discipline and the maturity to build our lives around receiving and giving love, not around adulting and meetings and schedules, but that everything would revolve around the practice of what you say is most important and will fill us to overflowing. We pray for this and trust in this and ask you to guide our steps in Jesus' name. Amen.